Hey, everybody. I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Hey, John. Oh, hi, Dan. So, John, I know this isn't your first job, so I'm curious. Did you by any chance work on the Chicago trading floor during the 1980s? No, I did not, Dan. I think the only association I had with Chicago in the 1980s was watching the Chicago Bears. That was the <laughs> era of the Bears. Yeah. Uh, and, maybe, and maybe some Blues Brothers movies. <laughs> well, well, I didn't work on the trading floor either, which might explain why I'm not filthy rich and why I don't have a crippling cocaine addiction. But because the 1980s were just an absolute bonkers time on the Chicago trading floor. There were these blue collar guys who had almost no financial education, were raking in millions of dollars. And uh, as we've learned on this show, where there are millions of dollars, there is often crime. Mm. Tell me more, Dan. Tell me more. Uh, no, I'm not going to tell you more. Instead, <laughs> instead, I'm going to bring on today's guest to do it for me. Uh, Anjay Nagpal is the host of a new true crime podcast called Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles, which tells this wild story I'm talking about of financial fraud on Chicago's trading floor and a very squirrely FBI investigation that followed it, which, depending on who you ask, was either a smashing success or a complete flop that cost taxpayers millions. Welcome to the Chicago Board of Trade and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. You might not know of them, but in the 1980s, they were the largest financial markets in the world. This guy made two million, this guy made three million, this guy made four million. I can make two million in a day. It was like a, an ATM machine for uh, traders, right? I'm making more than the starting quarterback of the, <laughs> uh, of the Bears. When there's that much money being made, people assume there's also corruption. People, in this case, being the FBI. Anjay is a movie producer, has worked on little-known films like Joker. You ever hear of that one? What? Cool. And Green Knight, among many others. But previous to all that, he himself was a trader in Chicago. So uh, let's get the story. Anjay, welcome. Welcome, Anjay. Thanks, guys. I'm uh, very excited to be here. I'm a big fan of your show. Thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. I wrote it. I wrote the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've started listening and was instantly, instantly wrapped up into this world that I honestly had no idea existed. So, Anjay, maybe you could just set the scene a little bit. Like, tell us what this world is, and then we'll get into your, your relationship to it, which is pretty interesting. Sure. You know, I'm glad you said that because... A lot of people didn't know what, what these exchanges were. You know, they were pretty obscured, but at the same time, they were massive. You know, they, they were gigantic. In, in the 70s and 80s, the, these exchanges, 
that started out the Chicago Board of Trade and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, you know, that were started in the 1800s for for uh, agricultural exchange, right? Like it was where, you know, farmers went to exchange uh, eggs and butter and cows with with uh, other farmers. And, you know, um, there were really agricultural markets and over time, other commodities. And then in the 70s and 80s, as we learned in our show, they started to trade a lot of financial products. And when they did that, these exchanges just absolutely exploded in size, in volume. There's a statistic in in, in our show that, you know, the actual notional dollar amount of contracts traded uh, at Chicago's exchanges was 60 times that of the New York Stock Exchange. So, yeah. And so, you know, like all of a sudden, these places were, were blowing up. Institutional traders, retail traders started trading these futures and, and eventually options products at the Mercantile Exchange and the Board of Trade. And, you know, it was truly a, a gold rush of epic proportions. And, and obviously that, that resulted in some some pretty crazy stories to come out of it. Yeah, well, the way you describe it, it seemed like one of the one of the big attributes you needed to to work on the floor was to be able to scream really loudly, and it seems like also take a copious amount of drugs and drink a copious amount of beer, <laughs> which is perfect for the eighties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny because you know some of the some of the things about the story are you know tropes that you'd expect from any kind of white collar crime, namely the things you just mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of money and a lot of partying. I think what makes what makes this scene different is like it's not the kind of, you know, Ivy League belt and suspenders crowd. It is, you know, just kind of neighborhood guys from Chicago. Some were very educated, but but most really were kind of, you know, a lot of blue collar people. I mean, we talked to a lot of folks who literally they were like one guy was a garbage man before he got brought down to the street. A lot of them were kind of gambling types, you know? And so this this, yeah. world, this world suited them and being from from the streets and from the neighborhoods of Chicago. And so so it was it was just a different kind of crowd. So Brokers, Bagman, and Moles is going to tell this story that unfolds uh, just delightfully. Uh, so we're not going to ruin it for anyone who hasn't been listening or, or hasn't gotten to the end yet. But everyone's making money. But where where does the crime come in? When do things get dirty? Or were they dirty from the get go? Ah, uh, yes, great question. Yeah, I, I want to just tell you guys like the way that I heard the story first. So uh, a, a big reveal for people who haven't heard the podcast, and it it came out April twenty sixth, and um, new episodes drop every week, and it's on all major podcast platforms. The, the reveal here is that I was a trader on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for about four years, four to five years um, in the early 2000s, which was uh, many years after this investigation. And I had never heard of it. And, and you know, it wasn't until a few years ago where some people that I traded with approached me. They said they wanted to do a story about the trading floor. We started developing a concept for a scripted television show. And then one of those, one of those two guys, a guy named Stretch, who's who's in the who's in the in the show, episode one, kind of casually mentions, "Oh yeah, you know that was kind of like during the time of the big FBI investigation." And I was like, "What? What hmm. big FBI investigation?" He's like, "You know the the one at the trading floors." I was like, "Nope, don't uh, tell me more. I'm I'm interested." And uh, and he says, "Yeah, well, so so what happened was, you know, the FBI thought all these brokers were stealing money from their customers, and, and so the FBI came." came down the exchange, four guys went in the pits wearing wires, pretended to be one of the Chicago traders, 
you know, and they were going to expose massive corruption. But instead, they totally failed. They put guys in jail for stealing $12.50, and they wasted millions of dollars trying to be traitors, right? Mm. And immediately, I'm, I'm a skepticist, so I was I was skeptical. Yeah. And so the truth isn't exactly that, so I just want to say it wasn't that blatant. But the FBI story was that this, the you know investigation was successful. So to me, I just was immediately, you know, I, I had to find out more. You know, I'm a curious person. And I just wanted to dig into it. And the truth just kept getting crazier and crazier when I dug into it. So, um, you know, we, I'll, I'd love to talk more about it. And, like, I think it's just that setup for me. Like, I was like, okay, this is great. These guys say it was a total failure. The FBI says, you know, they changed, uh, you know, the way trading is done and, uh, and, and cleaned up the industry. And so, so where's the truth? Okay, let's uh, let's head back to the '80s here. You said this attracted a certain type of trader, not not uniquely, but there was a lot of kind of more working class guys. Any characters come to mind that you know, that were really like when you were doing your research and when you've been interviewing people that would be interesting for people to know about? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's there's Tim Hendricks who, you know, he's been a broker. He still owns a brokerage firm. He was one of the last kind of brokers down there, and he is, um, he was great at his job, and he has no voice. And that's why we we opened the the show with him. Great, great guy, and one of our partners on the show. Um, you know, there's another guy, uh, his name is Tony Bongiorno, uh, and and you know his nickname is T Bun. He is a bartender at a dive bar right now in Chicago, um, and he's he's just a true character. He was a uh, a guy who, while he was a trader, was also a bookie, and uh, you know just just was a hot, you know total hustler and and just a, got the classic Chicago accent and uh, you know but but all 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 good people honestly like really uh, really good folks and uh, but tons of characters. So if they're so good and they and and it sounds like they are what attracted the feds to investigate this were they was there some sort of a kind of a bias so so that's actually one of the many mysteries of of our our show is like nobody really knew what started the investigation a lot mm. of people thought they knew what it was they they thought there there was a, a a big company named Archer Daniels Midland which is a food processing company uh, that still exists and is a massive corporation. It was actually the center of a movie called The Informant with Matt Damon. That company was in and of itself crooked, but they didn't, you know, they were big traders of agricultural commodities. And so the story goes that they didn't like what was happening on the floor. They thought they were getting ripped off by brokers. They called the FBI and the FBI started the investigation. Now in our show, we'll reveal that there's a lot more to it than that. But that was the common consensus. So the FBI just hears that there is egregious theft going on down there. They start doing uh, some research. They start talking to a couple people down there who say, yeah, the system is pretty manipulatable. And um, by the system, I mean open outcry. And that, that was the name of uh, how, how trading was done back then, which is, again, just like a big open auction system, right? Trades would come into a broker and you're supposed to kind of just scream out what you want to do, whether you want to buy or sell and how many contracts and at what prices you can do and things like that. So that's how it was done. And what that that system 
created a big gray area and and there's a uh, meaning like it was easily easy to manipulate right trades were written down on you know they were done verbally first of first of all and then they were written down on 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 paper and then these, those paper cards were eventually turned in and and then the trades were kind of memorialized as fact but that whole process took a while so if you wanted to change the price you could after the fact if you're a broker and you had a friend in the pit who you were trading with you know, you could kind of manipulate customer orders because it was just this very analog system. And there's, there's a quote that one of the defense attorneys had that describes this, this system, I think, in such a great way. And, and he said, people made minor unintended violations on one side of a big gray area, and some people made egregious theft with malintent on the other. The gray area, the gray area is policed by the exchanges. Customers can complain. No customers complained. The exchange let this big gray area exist despite technology existing to make the area smaller. And I think that, yeah. you know, whether you understand the details of it or not, that kind of makes sense, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so to your question of like, you know, was there theft? Were they good guys? Well, there, there were some people who really took advantage of the system and really did cheat and steal. The, there were others who, and, and most people at one point or another, skirted the rules in some way, but a lot of that was truly in the name of efficiency or giving your customer the right price or, or mm. you know, doing right by your customer. It wasn't so selfishly motiv motivated. What was it that attracted you so much to this story to the point where you wanted to make a podcast about it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm very glad you asked that because it, absolutely there were a few kind of kind of things that stuck out to me as, oh, mm. this is going to be a good story. The more we dig into it, and first and foremost is, you know, as we described, you know, these traders being kind of unique, you know, blue collar guys, rough around the edges, um, you know, they're actually quite, quite uh, more than a few of them had, had mob ties in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting crowd. And I didn't think that the, you know, and so for me, knowing who those traders were and then picturing, you know, four FBI agents who probably had accounting backgrounds <laughs> and, you know, went, went to... Uh, right. You know, went to nice prestigious colleges um, to try to pretend, you know, to try to mix yeah. in uh, on the floor and physically just stand in these, you know, among these traders and be like, hey, I'm one of you guys. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I, I just that that right there is like, oh, that's, you know, that that's a, that's a movie. <laughs> yeah, that's and that culture clash is really interesting. Like there's a real kind of inherent bias that the FBI is going to have against guys like this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you know, one one thing I'll I will reveal uh, is that we did talk to a few of the FBI agents, and and getting their point of view on this whole thing is really fascinating. So, if you stick it out and and, and you know, uh, until you hear them, I, it, you'll be uh, you, you'll be quite. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear yeah. their perspective. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, like one other thing about like what what made this um, you know worth telling is is really again by the end we kind of examine that whole system. And we, we realized that, you know, I just kind of read that quote and described that these exchanges, you know, they had this big gray area and they just weren't policed very well. And, um, and, and, you know, the people that ran the exchanges and the biggest traders, you know, didn't get so much as, as a charge levied against them. Whereas, you know, there were traders that, that made, like I said, small, you know, minor trading violations you know, that they realized were commodities trading infractions, but they never thought there would be federal crimes that would land them in jail. And that, and I'm not saying that 
that you know committing commodity violations is okay, but it seemed to them like the crime didn't fit the punishment. So you have you know all these you know really wealthy uh, CEOs and the biggest traders that went unscathed, and you have you know kind of the people at the bottom of the total pole getting screwed right. and you know serving time in jail and kind of being the fall guys in this whole thing. And so that that really motivated me. When you're, you know, researching and digging into a story that, as you said, involves guys who have mob ties, are there moments where you're like, what am I doing? Why am I, why am I looking for trouble here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it, it takes, uh, it, yeah, I'd pause a little bit and then think like, how, how deep should I go into this? But we actually went pretty deep into it, and and there's a whole you know subculture there of the floor. There's in fact there's a whole episode um, about this. There's a trader who his father was a mafia hitman who was actually murdered by Chicago outfit, and he tells his kind of life story, and it's really incredible. And he went on to be one of the more successful futures traders, you know, kind of in the history of 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 the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And so we, we kind of go there and he was, you know, I, I, I thank him for his honesty and, and you learn a lot about that life and, and the connections there in our show. Were people pretty open to talking to you? Did people want to tell this story? So at first, no, it, t- it took a while to, to get people to talk, uh, especially it took a long time, a long time for to get the FBI agents to talk. But the traders, I would say that, you know, Tim, the guy with the gravelly voice and Stretch, the guy, you know, those two guys in the first episode, they were really helpful because they knew uh, a lot of these traders personally. And that was kind of the only reason they opened up. And then once they, you know, talked to me before an interview, they, they kind of realized that I was, you know, an under, a sympathetic audience and they'd never told their story. So it, it definitely took a little bit, but I, I thought that was our kind of unique access into this, into this world that's never really been explored before. Um so, you know, it, it was that unique entry or connection into the world that, you know, that allowed them to talk to us. So learning about this, uh, this culture and everything that was going on before your time, did it make you go like, man, I wish I was alive when that was going on? Or were you like thankful that you weren't mixed up in that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, yeah, you know, you can't control timing, but absolutely. Uh, I missed, uh, you know, I missed a bit of the, uh, you of missed the gold the rush. Yeah. And, and even, you know, as well, um, kind of, I started trading right after the dot-com bust, right? It was like, great. Right. Thank yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, you so missed I, everything. I, yeah, I missed it. I actually did a short stint, a very short stint in San Francisco on the Pacific Coast Options Exchange. And without getting too nerdy, that was the only place uh, before, you know, everything kind of was, was more competitive, but that, that was the only exchange in the world you can trade options on tech stocks. And so I watched a ton of people make insane amounts of money um, when I was clerking for them, basically being their assistant. And then, you know, it all came to a, to a crash. And that's, that's when I started. So I've, I've missed the boat a couple of times. <laughs> well, do you see similarities though? Like, did it ever change? Did it change a lot when you, when you were in the game as opposed to the eighties or were there still, did it still have that kind of culture? You know, maybe the drugs were different. They were trading different things. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was, it was, it was still open outcry and it was still pretty manual when I started there. Um, you know, the writing was on the wall that everything was going electronic, but you know, another one of our themes is that, you know, this gray area, the exchanges and the people that ran it really wanted to keep the system in place for as long as humanly possible, um, because it was good for them. 
so so I did see you know that era of open outcry, and I did I was able to participate in that. And uh, there were still drugs, there was still a lot of drinking, and um, you know, so I definitely did witness kind of the craziness. Maybe not on the same level, but uh, but it, it, yeah, I I was there, I was in it. And does that gray area still exist? No, no, not not anymore. I mean, it, it, it did for a long time, I'm telling you. Like, even when I was there, you still we were still writing our trades on paper, and we get into all this stuff in the show, but, you know, that gray area. So, for example, you, you would write down a, a trade on a ticket, right? And uh, it used to be you just handed those in, I think, I want to say maybe just at the end of the day, right? But, but what happened is, you know, they did things like create a, a better audit trail. So it's like, okay, no, you have to timestamp that card and hand it in within a minute or three minutes of the trade, you know? And so therefore, you know, it was, it was easier to pinpoint exactly when the trade was made, what the price was and who you did it with. And there were fewer mistakes and fewer ways to kind of, you know, manipulate things. That's another thing where, if you want to, you can really learn quite a bit about the way that markets function, you know, any kind of markets and exchanges in our show, because we talk about the dynamic between brokers, right, which represent customer orders and what's called market makers. And, and market makers are, you know, traders who are local traders in the pit who, who are trading for their own accounts, either speculating or kind of getting in and out of trades and trying to make a little bit of money, kind of scalping price differences. And, you know, that dynamic still exists. And it's actually what was at a lot of the center of the controversy in the uh, meme stock stories, right? So um, I don't know if you guys remember, um, you know, GameStop, GameStop that yeah. whole fiasco, crazy fiasco. And like, it, it was wild for me, to, you know, that was going on while I was writing the show. And that was pretty wild because, you know, a lot of the talk was about Robinhood and this company called Citadel. Right. And, and Rob, right. Robin Hood's a broker and Citadel's a market maker. And, and that's what our show is about. Brokers and market makers and, mm. and the manipulating of customer. Some things never change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the manipulating of customer orders. Right. And so it's like, yeah, some things never change. Uh, ours is the, the last, you know, analog version. But but, it, you know, things are still happening today behind behind the scenes. And like another thing that's clear is that the government still doesn't understand this. You know, the, the baffled. Um, questioning right. from from congressmen, you know, to uh, the the Robin Hood guy and and Ken Griffin uh, from Citadel, you know, showed that they they still didn't understand those dynamics very well. So so how do you go from this this crazy life in the exchange, where there's drugs and crazy hours, to the straight and narrow world of Hollywood? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess I just like really. Uh, wild, uh, exciting industries. But I think like, um, you know, it, it was a deliberate move. I, I actually, I had a midlife crisis when I was like 26. <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, I was trading and I was making more money than I ever thought I would, but but nothing like, you know, not like the guys in the 80s, but it was doing well. But I, I just wasn't enjoying it. You know, I just, as a market maker, I didn't feel uh, I was providing any utility to the universe. And so, um uh, I, I kind of, you know, did some soul searching, realized how much I love film and, and kind of heard about this program, uh, about where you can, you can earn your MBA and study, concentrate in entertainment. And so that's what I did at UCLA out here in LA. And, uh, the rest is kind of history. That's amazing. What is a producer for this? I'm going to wear my entrepreneur hat here for a minute, but I know that a lot of our listeners are probably curious, like, what is a, like, for example, what does a producer do on 
a project like Joker. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, my role has been different on every film and, um, you know, but, but I think like it's, it's easily explainable that, you know, there's, there's kind of three main aspects of, you know, producing um, and, and, you know, the, the first is, you know, the, the most simple, which is like actually being on set and making the movie. Um, and, mm-hmm. and while I've done that before, I did, uh, you know, another aspect is the financial one. So if you can arrange financing, you're typically called an executive producer. Um, and that's, that was my role in a lot of films, including Joker. It was a, a company I worked with, uh, co-financed that movie. And then uh, other kind of producers is another another kind of producer but another responsibility of producers is creative uh producing working right. with uh writers and directors and and you know making sure the script's in a great place and kind of lining up all the uh, all the dominoes to get in, in into uh you know into production and like i said I've, I've done all all of those versions and it's different on every movie but you know those are the those are kind of the main responsibilities of different kinds of producers on a movie so anjay i've got a pitch for you so there's two guys that host a true crime podcast, and they do so many, and they learn so many schemes that they decide, let's pull one off, and we'll make a podcast Ooh, I like about idea. it. Yeah, I, I love that idea. <laughs> I will, I'll give you guys a development deal. Let's All right. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> this, is, this is great. What a great day this has turned out to be. <laughs> uh, you know, this story is going to take a lots of lots of twists and turns as we listen, but can you, can you give... Um, little hints at, at what's to come as we listen to uh to brokers bagmans and moles yeah absolutely my pleasure you know i think one of the things i that we ended up doing that we didn't really realize was was going kind of um away from the trading floor quite a bit and and we go to places like for example um congressional hearings where the uh heads of the exchanges are begging to maintain basically self-regulation, right? You know, we go to examine the mafia. We go to examine politics in Chicago and we see the bigger picture, right? So what what started out as a story about kind of traders who went to jail for stealing small amounts of money and the FBI agents who were there to catch them really kind of becomes this bigger picture of and that's kind of one of the one of the things about the FBI agents is like they we realized that they they were just doing their jobs and they have bosses too and they right. have bosses too and a lot of things are done for political reasons not necessarily because you know there the there's a crime and and a lot of you know uh, lawyers who started out or on the government side end up representing traders and then they get jobs in wow. Washington and there's you know it's just uh, as as uh, as Tony Bongiorno, T-Bun put it, it's all a fucking circle. That's what he says in one of the episodes. And and you really start to see that by the end. You're like, okay, the people who are in power, they keep it, they move around, they all know each other, and, uh, and, and you know, that's how they stay in charge. And, and you kind of see that big picture by the end of the show. I am interested in the psychology because you, having been in these positions, the psychology of people who get into this kind of work, like, is it just about money and power or is there something else at work? And and again, you know, this might necessarily be talking about your own motivations, but like you were around these people all the time. And like we said, things don't really change. Maybe the people change, the rules change, but, um, you know, it still kind of attracts a certain type of person. So I'm curious, like, what's the psychology behind these kind of like guys? It's just like, I got to make money quick or is there something more to it? Yeah. 
So I think with these Chicago traders, part of it was like, hey, this is the best option. Like this is a lot of them were so happy yeah. to be there and being a trash. Exactly. Man. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I think there's there's other people that, you know, higher up again, people that ran the exchanges. That's a power play because, you know, again, these, these exchanges, again, they were self-regulated. I mean, it's kind of insane, you know, like they weren't, they didn't have oversight by the SEC because they were agricultural exchanges, you know, which is part of our show too, that just examining that, which is wild in and of itself. And so there was this kind of really inept body called the CFTC that oversaw the exchanges and they didn't even really police the floor. They're just kind of policed, you know, off, off the floor brokers and stuff like that. So people that ran the exchanges were really motivated by uh, power, by being able to, you know, so, someone says towards the end of our show, people there who had the most power were the ones who had the most seats. And those are membership exchanges, right? So like the people who had the most money, had the most seats, had the most power. And then, so I think there is a kind of, you know, profile of certain people where it's, it's really all about prestige. It's all about money. It's all about um, having a political clout. And, and that is part of the kind of, I think, you know, psyche of, of some of those people. Um, but you know, one thing I love about your show that you guys talk about that I, I hit early on is it's just the psyche of white collar crime in general. Mm. Um, and, and we, we talk about that a lot. It's like some of these people they're doing really well. Like, what are you thinking? You know, well, how does it benefit you yeah. to, 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 to steal, right? Like it, it, it's, it's pretty wild. And, and also just, again, I think you guys have covered this in some of your episodes and I, I love it. It's like, you could have done so much good for the world. You could have made yeah. money in so many legal right. ways. Cause right. like the, this, your scheme is pretty smart. You know, it's like, Hey, why, why don't you just apply that <laughs> right. uh, to something within the rules and like, you'll be okay. You don't need to, to steal. But I think there's like a compulsion there, right? There's some some level of greed or compulsion to, you know, to, to make more that you can't satisfy, you can't satiate. It's, it's a pretty, pretty incredible uh, psyche. I know. I'm just, I'm too, I'm sadly too dumb to think of any schemes, but you know, if I could put that part to it, but <laughs> yeah. so far. Yeah. And, and, and we just need to give you a brain. Yeah. And then you'll be, <laughs> that is, what's yeah. that? Head shop boys, I've got the looks, you've got the brains. So you've got the looks, I've got the brains. Let's make lots of money. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. These, these traders too, they, um, even the like little petty theft and things that, or, or you know, skirting the rules to, to, to have the benefit of customers, like it was all really clever, you know? And that's why, you know, not a spoiler here, and uh, but, but that's why the FBI had a really hard time, let's just say, uh, figuring out what was going on down there. Awesome. Well, the show is, uh, I've only listened to a couple episodes, but I, like I said, I got hooked in right away. It's called Broker. It's really well produced, as you might imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and Unlike it, this show. We're- <laughs> yeah, it's, there's a lot of, my, actually, I did have one, another question. You know, you listen to, I know you listen to uh, hundreds of hours of FBI recordings. You know, where, how, where do, where do you, those aren't like on Spotify, right? No, I mean we spent a lot of uh, time and and money uh, um, trying to track down information uh, from the government, FOIA requests, all that kind of thing. Spent several weeks in the Dirksen Federal Building in Chicago, reading through transcripts that we had access, or sorry, you know, court transcripts and things like that that we had access to. Um, and, and but we couldn't take out of the room, so we just had to sit there and read. You know, wow. th- this case had four trials that had. Um, 
uh, that went on for a long time. So there was uh, probably over 100,000 pages of, of stuff. And literally, it was brought from a storage facility to the Dirksen building in these giant banker boxes. And that was the only copy. Wow. Um, and then we had to pay 50 cents, I think, a page for the ones that we, you know, for the for the pages that we wanted to wow. um, get, which we just received, actually. We only just got those. And... Uh, and and they're on a CD-ROM, so now I have to figure out how to get uh, <laughs> wow. to get a CD-ROM. <laughs> but it was that, uh, and that was my my colleague um, Danielle Elliott, our, our senior producer, and she's a, a killer podcast and documentary producer, and and uh, did all that. She's she's much smarter than me, so she she figured out how to obtain, you know, um, uh, tape transcripts and all that other stuff. That's amazing. So you and so you've now. I, this is produced by Entropy, which is your company, right? Um, it's interesting. You've gotten into the podcast game. Are you, as a as a person in Hollywood who's done a lot of stuff in Hollywood, do you see podcasting as being a really interesting new, not really new, but somewhat new uh, platform for telling stories? Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, like it's it's um, you know, I've had some people say, "Oh, are you leaving film to go into podcasting?" And I said, "No, I'm 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 not. I'm I'm reverse engineering IP." Right. Um, right. And so I'm, I'm glad, first of all, thank you for you know listening to the show and taking the time and, and to, for noticing that it's well produced. You know, that that's important to us where we are. Um, so, yeah, we we want to we, we love I, I truly you know, I'm, I'm a fan of podcasts. I'm not just doing this as a kind of something like, oh, it's, it's the hip thing to do now. Like, I really love them. I listen to a ton and I love these kinds of shows, these investigative narrative ones that have really interesting characters and take you into a world. Um, and so that, that's what we want to do. And of course we want to, you know, your question earlier about, um, what got me interested in this and those dynamics of, you know, the FBI going into the pit. It's like, I, I heard the story and I was like, this is going to be a good movie or a good, good scripted series. And, and that's kind of what we try to do with all our shows. Um, we've got a bunch more coming up, a lot of white collar crime. So hopefully I'll be back. Um, but also cool. different kinds of, you know, different genres as well. But I think all of them, um, all the, all the stories that we we love as a company, you know, we can see as documentaries, uh, uh, feature films, or, or or television series. Anjay, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, uh, Dan, did you have one last thing you wanted to say or anything? No, I have nothing left to say to Anjay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thanks so much. I mean, you guys are awesome. I really love the show, and I, I really um, thank you for having me on. You know, new episodes of Brokers, Bagman, and Moles are available now on all streaming platforms, so definitely check it out. Nanjay, thanks so much, man. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.